0: This talk is given by a student at Ordinary Mind Zendo. In these talks, senior students explore their personal journeys, share their understanding of the Dharma, and offer encouragement to others in their practice. The talks are unique in that they present a diverse set of voices walking a common path. I wanna talk about Zen and pond water and mothering, a few of my favorite things. The other night, I was driving to a friend's place on the south side of Chicago, listening to an audiobook and trying to figure out what I might talk about in this talk, my first student talk. As I was crossing the Chicago River at its mouth by Lake Michigan, in the audiobook, the author started reading a chapter about the pond on her land and its significance to her daughters and to her as a mother. I thought it was an amazing teaching about our practice and I wanted to share it here. The book is Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants, a gift of a book by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is a Potawatomi ecologist, mother, university professor, and writer. The chapter is titled A Mother's Work. I need to say that Kimmerer's writing has a particular poignancy for me, and it's a very difficult one. Her great-grandfather and her Potawatomi people were forced off the land where I live not long before my great-grandparents moved here. This is a land of oak savannas, sand dunes, one of the great lakes of the world, and several great rivers, especially the Chicago River. Chicago is a word from the Potawatomi language family for an early spring ramp that is supposedly quite delicious with a taste like a mix of garlic and onion. I also want to say that the early citizens of the city of Chicago did not know how to live well with the waters. Even reversing the Chicago River and badly confusing our watersheds so that they could keep using the river as a garbage and sewer dump and still get drinking water from Lake Michigan. Milwaukee and the Mississippi River now have to deal with Chicago's problems. Chicago is not a popular neighbor in the waterways around here. We don't talk enough, or I don't think enough, about the fact that our Ordinary Mind School was founded by a woman and a mother. I think Kimmerer's chapter helps us think about that and see that it matters maybe quite a lot. But first, let's get into pond water. Pond waters have been part of my Zen life since early on. I think my first teacher, Roshi bowden Colheed, or maybe it was Randy, the main resident at the Chicago Zen Center, shared an image of our minds as like a mason jar of pond water. I think this image was originally from Alan Watts, or maybe Watts got it from somewhere else. The image went on that we were troubled by the murkiness and mess of the pond water and wanted that water to go from murky and opaque to clear. So we poke at the floaties to try and fix our mind, try to swirl the water in the jar just right to get the leaf debris to separate from the mud so they might float to the top to get some clarity in our minds. But of course, as we futz with the water, poking and swirling, we might clarify a bit, but we'd mostly stir up more muck. Futsing with our minds as a hopeless project. So instead we do zazen. We place the mason jar on a windowsill, one of the most steady perches in a house, put a lid on it and let it sit, like for a week, like a sachine. The idea was that the pond water would clarify on its own. The debris would float to the top and settle there. The mud would sink to the bottom and we'd have crystal clear water in between. Our minds would become quite clear at least until sashine was over. And then we'd have to eventually get good at not futzing with our minds in our daily lives to make that clarity permanent finally. It's a good image for practice and all images break down if pushed far enough. In fact, I think it's an excellent image for practice, but maybe even better than intended. I love pond water. I loved that image. I grew up fishing. I grew up around wild waters, looking at them for hours, studying them, always being delightfully defeated in understanding them. So, I would sit in Zazen in those early days of practice and think lovingly about that mason jar full of pond water sitting on a windowsill on a bright summer day. The little twigs, the leaf debris, the mud of different colors, the beautiful brown murkiness and silt of the water refracting, sparkling clearly here and there, maybe a cute little larva or two swimming in gyrations if I had a lucky scoop. Anyone who knows pond water knows that it doesn't clarify into something else. Pond water stays pond water and it is gorgeous. Kimmerer knows pond water. The chapter I mentioned opens with her standing in her pond wearing waders as she tries to clarify the old overgrown pond on her land. She could have just let the pond be in a detached study of its suchness and its impermanence. As it completes its life cycle and becomes completely choked with plants and algae and sludge, and slowly turns to a grass meadow and then maybe a maple forest, but she didn't do this. She is a mother. Detachment is not her practice. Kimmerer and her husband had recently divorced and had moved out of the com- and he had moved out of the country. I imagine her daughters were grieving the divorce and the loss of her, their father hard. She and her daughters had bought and moved into the house with the pond in the winter in upstate New York. The house had been advertised as having a spring-fed pond, and her daughters were excitedly fixated on swimming in their pond in their new life. But come spring, the reality of the pond was very different than expected and advertised more soup of plants and algae and mud. Kimmer got to work. Like Kimmerer, in early practice, confronted with the painful mess and morass of our minds and ourselves, of our pond, of our world, we could have just read some Zen and done the beat Zen thing. Just let the suchness of our minds, the suchness of the world be, a kind of detached passive nihilism and a seemingly religiously sanctioned one. Jack Kerouac got there in this haiku from his Dharma bums. I don't know, I don't care, it doesn't matter. Just let it all grow over and transform naturally. Like we and our relationships aren't really real. It's just stuff. But like Kimmerer, that's not our practice either, it seems, since we're all sitting here to riff on Kerouac, we might not know, but we care and we know it matters. Kimmerer, when she had breaks from working or parenting, worked at trying to clarify that pond to make the home her children needed. She wisely knew that their time with her at home, their childhood was finite. So Kimmerer gets to futzing with the pond, mechanically pushing it to clarify, she hopes. But like the image of Zen and the mason jar of pond water, her practice and ours isn't that simplistic. She valiantly launches a canoe into her pond, bearing a rake to scoop up the algae to help her daughters. The first heavy scoop badly tips her canoe into the muck she went. For us, maybe we jumped in to Zazen in a project to clarify our minds, clarify ourselves like Kimmerer with great good intention because it matters to us and matters to the people in our lives. So we count our breaths, label our thoughts, concentrate on a koan or try to just sit, sit there. But practice eventually becomes another snare in our already painfully tangled minds tipping us even deeper into the muck of our minds and ourselves. We, or I, start arguing with practice or abandoning it or feeling victimized by it. Frustrated, humiliated, covered in muck and snares, we set down our rake, try to dry off and reassess. When Kimmerer does this, she gets more sophisticated. Remove the nutrients, not the growth. Get rid of mud that feeds the plants and algae. Our corollary in our practice might be that we get more sophisticated. Try to get rid of our needs or transform, transcend them. No gain or loss, no right or wrong. Get rid of our needs, like getting rid of the mud, might then stop the painful grasping and rejecting that ever grows and tangles and binds us. Without needs, our minds might finally become clear, Our self at peace. Back to Kimura and her pond. She found that the mud filling her pond couldn't be removed. Shoveling it up from the bottom, just spread it around the water as she pulled it up. It sifted through any screen she could fashion. We probably also found no shovel or screen that could remove our needs. So much for that project. Now something very interesting happens. Kimmerer gets curious about the life in her pond, even starts to respect it. Quote, I'm a botanist by trade, and so of course I needed to know who these algae were. I would do a disservice to their lives and to my task if I didn't know who they were. So I scooped up a jarful of green slime and took it to my microscope with the top screwed tightly to contain the smell, end quote. For us, we might get curious about our minds, about ourselves, as stinky and vile as they can seem. What is going on with all these thoughts, all these emotions, these desires, these needs? Why am I having them? Why are they here? Traditionally, in my limited experience, I think this sort of move used to be considered a grave danger to true true practice. The mind is makyo, illusion, maya and engaging with it in any way a trap of ego to keep its power over us so we don't transcend it with true practice. Instead of Kimmerer's curiosity about the lives of her pond, in this traditional take, we were supposed to starve the lives of our mind by neglecting them. This is very much not the way of our ordinary mind, so let's leave it aside and go with Kimmerer to her ordinary pond with curiosity and respect. She writes, quote, I teased apart the slippery green wads into tiny wisps that would fit beneath my microscope. In this single tuft were long threads of chlorophora, shining like satin ribbons. Wound around them were translucent strands of spirogyra in which the chloroplasts spiral like a green staircase. The whole green field was in motion. With iridescent tumbleweeds of volvox and pulsing ooglenoids stretching their way among the strands, so much life in a single drop of water—water water that previously looked like scum in a jar. Here were my partners in restoration. "End quote." Shariat spoke last week beautifully and sensitively about being at home in our skin. Along these lines, by the way of ordinary mind we might be at home in our minds as they remain pond water. Kimmerer, having come into clear, respectful relationship with the lives of her pond, writes that then, quote, I simply gave myself up to the task. I remember the liberation of just walking right into my waist the first time, the lightness of my t-shirt floating around me, the swirl of the water against my bare skin. I finally felt at home. The tickles at my legs were just wisps of spirogyra, the nudges just curious perch. I developed a new relationship with mud. Instead of trying to protect myself from it, I came to know the feel of the gravelly bottom below the muck, the sucking mud by the cattails, and the cold stillness where the bottom dropped away from the shallows. Transformation is not accomplished by tentative waiting at the edge. "End quote." Kimmerer's story in this chapter does not end with a neat happy ending. She didn't quite succeed. Her children became adults and left home before the pond was really swimmable. The pond stayed a pond despite all her efforts and intelligence, but it also did not simply slide into a bog. There wasn't some great permanent crystal clarity, but there also wasn't sheer morass. She had a pond. I think we're back to some of the basic questions of our practice. How do we live well with the waters of our minds and all their inhabitants and the waters of the world and all who they touch? Gary Snyder makes the observation in his book, The Practice of the Wild, that human beings are wild animals. That is, we were never domesticated and bred. There is a wildness to us, to our minds. And there is husbandry here as well. A great word that Wendell Berry uses, that Berry champions. Zazen, it seems to me these days, is a really interesting dance or combination of wildness and domestication, wildness and husbandry. We sit, often trying to do it right, to make our minds or ourselves, the pond, the way we think it should be, so that we'll be okay. These are Barry's curative fantasies. But they don't work, or they don't work for long, at least for me. The wildness comes into play. We lose. The wildness even overwhelms us for a time. We get righted again. And we sit there again, maybe more humble. We haven't chosen to be humble because it's a virtue or because we'll maybe get more power that way. Those would be more curative fantasies. We're more humble because we lost. The way of losing is a tough teacher. And again, we also don't go beat Zen, we don't just let it all ride. We sit still until the bell rings and then we bow. There are more bells, clappers, we bow more, all these wild creatures doing it in synchrony. Then we walk, a bunch of bipedal animals walking evenly spaced at the same slow pace in loops. More bells, more bows, very civilized. We sit again, back to the pond, over and over. Of course, this has got to get into our daily lives. That's why we're here. The subtitle of Joko's first book, Everyday Zen, is from Freud, Love and Work. Here's me practicing in my daily life this past week. The other day, my workday is kind of a mess. It's fast ending and I've done half of what I planned to do, deadlines slipping away. This is a mess and it's my life today. I could curse the day and hope for a better one to come, throw this one in the trash and move forward with some hope. Or I accept that this is it. This is my day and my life today. A day only a mother could love. And she'd be right, algae and muck and all. Again, our ordinary mind lineage starts with a woman and a mother, with Joko. Being a mother profoundly shaped her teaching and our school. She told me once, wincing deeply, that her early training, she went so hard into the Zen practice that she effectively often abandoned her children. She warned me to never do that. I was like 20 and in college, no sign of kids on any horizon. So I was a little confused, but I also took what she said to heart. To end, I want to bring this back to Kimmerer, another woman and another mother. Quote After 12 years, the pond is nearly swimmable if you don't mind the weeds that tickle your legs. On a hot day, it feels wonderful to submerge in the icy spring water and watch the polywogs flee. Emerging with a shiver, I have to pluck bits of algae from my wet skin. The girls take a quick Quick dip to please me, but in truth, I've not succeeded in turning back time. So it is my grandchildren who will swim in this pond and others whom the years will bring. The circle of care grows larger and caregiving for my little pond spills over to to caregiving for other waters. The outlet from my pond runs downhill to my good neighbor's pond. What I do here matters. Everybody lives downstream. My pond drains to the brook, to the creek, to a great and needful lake. The water net connects us all. I have shed tears into that flow when I thought that motherhood would end. But the pond has shown me that being a good mother doesn't end with creating a home where just my children can flourish." End quote. And with that, I would like to particularly hope for a world where Israeli and Palestinian children, Jewish and Arab children can flourish.